Fresh Economic Thinking podcast, new ideas and analysis with Dr. Cameron Murray and Jonathan Gadir. Hi, Cameron. How's it going? Good, thanks, Jonathan. Nice to be back with you. Yeah, so I, I saw on your Twitter that there's a bit of a Barney on um, how wealth is reported. Um, and in particular, we've got a report from Credit Suisse uh, that you know has been widely covered, including in the Fin Review. And it basically says that uh, Australians are, um, you know, the richest people in the world. The Fin Review article begins by saying that 2.2 million Australians are millionaires. And um, that's uh, that's because soaring asset prices have pushed another 390,000 adults onto the top rungs of the global wealth ladder, according to this report. Um, and uh, it kind of goes to some of the things that really annoy me about the way property and housing is reported in Australia. So wealth is obviously measured by what? Just housing values? Yeah, I guess just the market value of... Uh the latest house sale applied to the whole stock of housing. Yes, that's how it's uh, calculated. And what was the other headline that you saw? Was Yeah, so it's an interesting report. Not only are the Australians richer, I saw a headline covering it in uh, Business Insider. The headline reads, the typical Chinese adult is now richer than the typical European adult, a new wealth report finds. Uh, and the byline there, the, the sub subheading, the average Chinese citizen has a wealth of $26,752, around $60 more than the average European. It's a, like, it's, it's, that's pretty astonishing to me, right? Like, um, in terms of the path of human society, having uh, the average Chinese adult be richer than the average European is like, seems like a big, important milestone to me. You know, for some reason, <laughs> yeah. for some reason we don't think so. And a, a guy called Warwick Smith, uh, an economist in Melbourne, tweeted an, to an article, uh, linked to an article that he wrote like eight years ago um, about exactly the same kind of report. It seems to be like every year, essentially. Yep. And it really went to the heart of what bothers me about this. It's He basically wrote, um, I'll just find the quote, Uh, this quote, this is a little bit like saying that because the market price of a human heart has gone up, we're all now rich. Um, Increases in house prices are only really beneficial to those who own more than one house. If you only own one house, like you only own one heart, the circumstances in which you can really benefit from price increases are rare. That's That's a great analogy. I like that. Yeah, and then the way the media reports this issue, and I'm going to blame economists here, but it sort of echoes an economist's way of looking at property, and it doesn't reflect the reality that it, you know, a house or a, any kind of home is a place that's filled with emotional attachments and sentiments, and where I think, as you've said, memories are created and roots are laid down. Yeah. No, look, Warwick's totally spot on there, right? Um, the problem with just adding housing wealth, it's um, and just adding it on to other types of liquid wealth is that you have to live somewhere. <laughs> and so um, you can definitely sell your house and get that as cash, but then you still have to live with somewhere. And then you have that that liability of renting 
which is, you know, for the rest of your life, roughly similar in value to that value of the house. So, you know, uh, if so, so think about it this way. If we had a policy that made houses cheap for everyone, that would be good for society, right? Because everyone would have a cheap house. But in the Credit Suisse report, uh, we'd be going down the rankings because we'd be getting poorer, yet we'd have more houses more easily available to more people for a cheaper price. So that would be in the sort of true human value sense, a wealthier society because we have more stuff at a cheaper price. Um, but because uh, of the way it's measured and reported, uh, the opposite is true. <laughs> when, when houses get, you know, if one person owned all the houses and the prices went up, yeah, everyone would yeah. be really upset, right? Yeah. But according to Credit Suisse, you could average that uh, increase in value of that housing stock averaged across all the adults and say, look, Australia's really rich now. And we're like, yeah. hang on, we're not rich because we're paying this one person who owns all the houses all this money. <laughs> we're poor, we're slaves. Um, mm. So the, the hidden distribution there is, um, is what's going on. And also, you know, when we compare, for example, the, you know, the Chinese wealth to the average European wealth, there are a huge um, number of unpriced um, sort of welfare benefits or public services that are definitely part of the national stock of wealth that don't get into these types of reports. So if you had a fully you know, private hospital system and everyone owned shares in these companies that owned the hospital system, you know, wealth would be higher. But if you had a fully public system that gave everyone free healthcare, but it was a bigger system with better hospitals, more doctors and better healthcare, because the capital value of that system is not priced because you don't have those shareholders, um, its value just wouldn't be counted in this total sort of, you know, wealth stock of the nation. Um, and that's why you get these weird outcomes like, you know, the, the average Chinese citizen's wealth wealthier than the average European. Um, it's because we represent um, the production of goods and services in the price of capital assets in very different ways, depending on how it's supplied. So, you know, a public road is worth nothing in the wealth test. Put a toll on it, privatize the company and sell the shares. All of a sudden, we're rich. It's the same road. Yeah. Gets yeah. you from A to B. <laughs> um, but that's the sort of hidden uh, mechanism behind it all. And, I, I, yeah, so I love Warwick's um, analogy of the heart. Yeah, you, ha you need one heart. It doesn't matter what it's worth. Um, <laughs> you need one house. It doesn't really matter what it's worth. Um, so, yeah, it makes for good headlines. Mm. But I'm not sure, sure. I'm not sure it means anything. And maybe that's why the absolutely amazing fact that the Chinese adult is now richer than the typical European adult just um, doesn't resonate because most people know that it's just, you know, a marketing pitch for Credit, credit Suisse uh, in their wealth report. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway, and there was yeah. a, a tweet on, um, I think it was, you retweeted it, it was about how you can go from 38000 income to 65,000 income and find your disposable incomes unchanged. Did you see a link between the two? Uh, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so that was another bit of uh, analysis this week by Dave Plunkett and Dave's um, probably the Australia's guru on what's called effective marginal tax rates. And the effective marginal tax rate is essentially, it's a bit like a tax rate, how much of an extra um, dollar you lose because of tax, but it adds in how much 
of an extra dollar you lose in um, welfare benefits that that um, go down when your income goes up. So for example, you can earn an extra dollar, pay 30 cents tax and lose 50 cents in family benefit payments. So your effective marginal tax rates, 80 cents per dollar. So I go and earn an extra dollar, I only get 20 cents of it because I'm paying 30 cents extra tax and losing 50 cents of some family tax benefit. Um, so he's the expert in that. And um, what you find in um, Australia's welfare state is families with lots of children, especially in with low incomes, um, when they earn more money, um, they don't really get much more in their pocket because not only do they pay tax, they lose a lot of benefits that phase out at sort of 40 or 50 cents in the dollar, plus you're paying 30 cents in the dollar. Plus we have other things like HEX repayments, the public uh, loan scheme for university. Um, so what you can end up doing is, in his example, this particular couple with their particular qualifying benefits and family structure, they can go. They can earn thirty thousand in market income by going to work, or sixty thousand and have the same amount of money go into their bank account, um, because every extra dollar they earn from thirty to sixty, they lose it all in tax and foregone welfare. Now, so, in other words, link- yeah, like the loan thing, like the university loan, it the repayments kick in. The repayments and, kick in. So for yeah. yeah. So for example, you lose thirty cents to tax, fifty cents to family benefit, and twenty cents to repay your. Um, education loan, your HEX loan, well, why would I earn an extra dollar? Because I've got to distribute that extra dollar to the tax man, back to Centrelink and to the HEX repayment. Uh, There's no incentive. Now, luckily, Mm. um, luckily people don't really know their effective marginal tax rate very well. And we, you know, people still go around trying to get pay rises and work more. And also luckily these situations um, don't persist for very long in the life cycle. It's usually when you have a certain number of kids at home um, and you're earning a certain amount. So it usually doesn't last more than a few years and then you start earning more and your effective marginal tax rate comes down or your kids grow up and um, you get less welfare benefits. So that that's, you know, a, a good part, but it's also a perverse part of the system. Now, what's the link between that and Credit Suisse's report? Well, the point here is when you have a broad... Um, public welfare system, especially uh, the age pension, which we have, well, one of the problems you have is you get high effective marginal tax rates if it's if it phases out quickly as you earn income. But the other problem is um, the pension, um, the capital value of that right to a pension is not priced. Yeah. So a country who runs a publicly administered pension that has a um, a fund, like a like like our superannuation, but if it was a public fund, um, we would go, hey, look, you know, we've got all this wealth in this fund, and we can add that wealth and say, you look, Australians really rich. Look at all this stuff we own. But the pension, you know, you can also represent the value of pensions as an asset as well. Um, and there's there's a group. Um, who study economists, the sort of the name for their approach is called capital as power. Um, and they basically, they say, well, capitalization, representing the value of things as a capital value is like a ritual that we do. And we do it sometimes for the value of a toll road, but we don't do it other times, like for the value of the same road when someone else owns it, when it's a government department. And that's true of 
public pensions too. So let me give you an example. Um, the value to me of being an Australian citizen and being able to get the age pension is quite high, right? Like yeah. the age pension is what, 30-something thousand a year. I might get it for 20 years. I'm talking $600,000 plus. Mm -hmm. There is a present value of that right. I, if I could sell to a foreigner the right to my public Australian age pension, they would pay me hundreds of thousands of dollars, mm -hmm. right? To say, to replace me and qualify. So what we could do is we could start pricing the age pension with a, a pension bond or a pension, um, you know, some kind of financial instrument and start trading them internationally and go, okay, sell an Australian age pension in um, India and China and whatnot, right? And then we'd get a market price for it. And then we could add all that up and say, hey, the market price is $500,000 per age pension. Every Australian qualifies for it. So we've got 25 million times 500,000. We're at you know, $13 billion nearly. That's what the age pension's worth. We should add $13 billion to the wealth of Australians and then we'd be even richer, according to Credit Suisse. But all I've done is I've created sort of a priced financial asset to represent stuff that was already happening anyway. And so that's sort of um, the link there is when you have um, good public uh, welfare, good public services that aren't priced, you look poor. So Germany, you know, it's got a broad public pension. It's got broad public um, schemes. You know, it looks poor compared to the Chinese. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, in terms of material goods and services that people get, it's actually rich. It's just that a lot of the value is unpriced because it's it's sort of run in a, a more public uh, organization. Yep. So yeah, it's a, it's a bizarre thing. So that's the sort of the link between um, Dave Plunkett's tweet that I'm sharing saying, yes, you know, the welfare um, system we have is good, but there's high effective marginal tax rates, but also the welfare system means um, that we're, we have a lot of wealth that is unpriced also. Yep. Well, yeah. it certainly suits a certain um, political ideology to pretend that, you know, um, you know, we're rich if we do things um, a certain way and we're poor if we provide goods and services through the welfare system. Yeah, and, and it's the same same sort of thing with um, privatising public assets. So uh, New South Wales and Victoria both privatised their land titles office and one raised $2.6 the other raised $2.9 and now they think, you know, they're rich. And, but the point is they just, they had a $2.6 billion asset they owned that organization. They just didn't record that asset value anywhere, right? Yeah, but once it's yeah. sold to the private sector, all of a sudden there's a free magical $2.6 billion, um, you know, a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, and the way we think about it is we think, oh, now we're rich because we've got $2.6 billion in cash, but we don't have the organization that's worth $2.6 billion because it raised a lot of money for us each year. Um, yeah. We think there's sort of some kind of free money there. So that's just another another case of, of, of how distorted um, comparing these types of aggregate financial wealth can be internationally. And I think that's why it gets a few headline clicks, but doesn't really change, you know, the economic conversation too much for serious analysts. Yeah.
Okay, and reversing the order of our usual um, proceedings, I'm going to do Abani now, and that is about the, um, it's from your state, it's about the Queensland land tax, the financial review from, I think it was uh, a few weeks ago, yep, September the 5th, the way they reported it was interstate landlords and retirees who own even just one investment property in Queensland could be slugged with tens of thousands of dollars more land tax next year as the state's new tax regime comes into effect. Um, now, the New South <laughs> Wales Premier decided to earn a bit of... Um, free publicity through the Murdoch press by saying he's not going to release information to the Queensland government that would help <laughs> them to know who in yeah. who owns the, anyway you can explain it yeah let me explain what what the the announcement was from Queensland for this land tax change so land tax is um, an annual tax on the value of land in Queensland and it's on the aggregate value of land held by any individual or corporation so if I uh, and I think you have to have six hundred thousand dollars worth of land value before you get hit from, by the tax and it can't be land under your principal place of residence so if I had three you know regional investment properties um, that had a land value of two hundred thousand dollars each um, the land state of, office of state revenue would add all that up and go. Cameron owns six hundred thousand dollars of land value in his investment property, so he now has to pay land tax on every dollar above six hundred thousand. So you know, if it's six hundred and fifty thousand, I pay whatever the rate is on fifty thousand dollars, and I pay that as a, a land tax bill. What Queensland's doing is saying, I'm not just going to add up your Queensland properties. I'm going to add up the land value of properties in other states also in Australia. So if I own one property in Queensland, that's $200,000 of land value and one property in New South Wales, that's um, $500,000 of land value. They're going to add them both up and say, hey, um, on that, um, I'm going to pretend that that New South Wales one is in Queensland, mm -hmm. add up the 700,000, work out the bill and then divide it by the proportion of the total land value that's in Queensland and, and send you the bill. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to add in a bunch of interstate investors who have one property in Queensland that's worth less than $600,000 in land value. That's just the land value. So these are properties usually over a million dollars, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to add in a tax bill to all these interstate investors who own investment properties in Queensland that fall under the tax land tax threshold by by bundling all their properties in the in the nation together and then pretending that they're all in Queensland and sending you Queensland's share of the bill, which is which is to be honest a pretty bizarre thing to do. It's like um, yeah. you know, imagine Australia saying, well, whatever property you own in China, I'm going to add it to your pretend that you own it here and add it uh, calculate some kind of local land tax based on that like it, it's it's weird You're but right. i think i think politically it's done because the people who are most likely to pay don't reside in queensland and don't vote in queensland <laughs> okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's mostly going to hit it's mostly going to hit interstate investors who own a few apartments or you know a couple of properties um, so it's it's basically trying to tax interstate investors on their Queensland property 
in a creative way so that the backlash is, well, they, they don't vote, so we're going to get some free money uh, from them. Um, so, look, that's what's going on. And, yeah, I've got a headline here from Crikey that says, Queensland tried to reform property tax, state rivalry derailed it. This doesn't bode well. And the first yeah. sentence there is, the political clumsiness of Queensland's Palaszczuk government illustrates just how difficult tax reform uh, will be when it inevitably comes in Australia. And so what's happening now is New South Wales is is playing this, this game of uh, this Barney of not releasing its land ownership records to the Queensland State Office of Revenue so that, that they can administer the tax the way they've proposed to do it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is super weird. And and my gut feeling on this 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 Barney and this land tax thing is is firstly, what I've heard is that the expected revenue is pretty low from this change. Um, my understanding is it's something like um, forty million dollars a year extra um, of land tax, which is really not much. Mm. Queensland, uh, you know, the land tax is expected to affect approximately ten thousand investors and recoup about twenty million dollars a year. Mm-hmm. It's, that's really not much. Compare that to the tax change recently uh, for um, for royalties on coal. Um, mm-hmm. What Queensland, what Queensland did there is they, the the coal royalties in Queensland are a little bit like, um, a little bit like income tax, where you pay a higher rate the higher your income on that, you know, marginal income. Yeah, and so Queensland introduced some higher tiers because the coal price is higher than anyone ever expected. Um, they had an additional rate of 30% when the price is above 225 Aussie dollars and another rate of 40% when the price is higher than 300 Aussie dollars. Um, and so they expect that just those higher marginal rates on coal royalties to raise $1.2 billion of revenue in four years. So we're talking $300 million a year, which is... Um, massive, right? It's uh, it's it's fifteen times more than what the land tax change mm-hmm. is likely to raise. So the question I I that comes to me is: this is a weird tax change to involve other states in this type of method for twenty million dollars a year. Mm. Like it's a big it's a big political risk for that amount of money. So what's it all about? Um, you know, I think saving twenty million dollars across the state budget would be pretty easy to do in a politically beneficial way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, look, I don't know if it's good politics or bad politics, but there's a lot of um, a lot of words being written uh, on a $20 million a year type tax, which is very, very small in the scheme of things. Yeah. Um, that same Thin Review article said a Sydney-based investor and founder of buyer's agency investor kit Arjun Paliwal said his tax land tax will rise by fifteen to 20000 after buying two properties in Bundaberg and Townsville last year. Quote, I bought these properties early in their cycle, so there's not enough growth for me to quickly sell up because I don't like this policy, Mr. Palawal said. So I just need to be patient and bear the added holding cost for now and look at recouping it by raising my asking rents. 
Um, does that yeah. mean rent's <laughs> going to go up because of this? Well, look, that's the that's the angle that property developers or property owners, landlords, always say. You know, you add taxes to us, rents go up. Rents go up, but of course, almost no landlords. Um, have costs that are anywhere near their rents, right? Because most landlords bought decades ago. Um, only the most recent, you know, only the most recent fifty or sixty thousand landlords, um, you know, are repaying a big mortgage and have costs that are anywhere near their um, their rental incomes. So yeah, I th- they, look, if if they could raise the rent without the land tax, they would have done it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> okay. Yeah. The yep. just be, you know I I put it like this: if you get a fine, if you get a parking fine when you go and inspect your property that you're the landlord of, are you able to put the rent up to help cover that parking fine? Probably not, right? So if I, you know, if you have some unrelated increase in in costs, it doesn't mean you can just put the rent up. Um, rents are set by the rental market, not by the costs of a very small number of landlords. Um, so I don't think that's the case. The other um, the other sort of story that's come out in the media about this is that the landlords are all going to sell en masse. Mm-hmm. All these interstate landlords are going to sell their Queensland investment properties. Now, yeah, again, right. well, <laughs> well, yeah, right. They've just made 50% um, capital gains plus about, you know, 8% return uh from rents in the last two years so i'm not sure well maybe they will try and get out right because it's just good timing but that doesn't that doesn't mean the house disappears they either sell to another landlord or they sell to an owner occupier who used to be a renter and that's that's all there is to it the the properties don't disappear so the only thing that can happen is the price can change if more landlords decide to sell all at once, which again is a good thing for buyers, right? Having more sellers. So um, yeah, you've got to understand the interest of the landlord and the renter essentially conflicting. Mm. So when landlords complain, oh, I've got to sell, you know, this and that, generally you can interpret that as this is something good for renters <laughs> um, because they're, they're, their financial interests are essentially opposed. Um, Brilliant. So, yeah, yeah yes. that's, the, that's the Queensland, New South Wales land tax Barney. Very good. Good place to end today. And, uh, yeah, thanks for explaining that so clearly. Look forward yeah. uh, to uh, another chat uh, next time. Yeah, great to chat. Talk to you later, Jonathan. See you, Cameron.